0: Hello. Welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of issues in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law. We hope that it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. For this episode, I'm joined by my colleague at King's Chambers, Stephen McNamara, a clinical negligence and personal injury expert, and we're going to discuss claims arising out of allegedly negligent psychiatric care. Stephen, I know you've conducted a lot of these claims, and obviously we have to maintain confidentiality, but can you give me a flavour of some of the psychiatric care claims that you've been involved in? Yeah, sure.
1: I mean, we get quite a wide range, I think, of circumstances that give rise to these sorts of claims. So by way of example, um, one can see cases of suicide or very serious um, physical self-harm, which can occur uh, when somebody's an inpatient. They might be a detained inpatient pursuant to the Mental Health Act, or they might be uh, a voluntary inpatient, Uh, Likewise, that can happen when they are out in the community, either under formal provisions like a community treatment order or less formal uh, provisions. And the range of circumstances that give rise to those outcomes and injuries is itself uh, very varied. So, for example, you might have environmental factors. It could be something as simple as a ligature point that wasn't spotted uh, in the inpatient setting uh, or a door wasn't locked, for example, or or even a window which was uh, uh, not known to be uh, insecure, proved to be when somebody pushed at it or jumped through it or whatever. Um, so there's a, there's a whole series of different sort of factual circumstances that, that can give rise to it. And in addition to that, one also sees cases, for example, of absconsion, where a patient will be uh, in the inpatient setting but leaves uh, and comes to injury uh,
0: uh, through that route. So a whole range of different circumstances, really, that one encounters. And they may arise not just in a mental health setting or a psychiatric unit yes but in any part of the healthcare system yes so for example i've had cases where injuries have arisen as a result of negligent a&e management of yes. a psychiatric patient so It can arise in all sorts of settings. Uh, That's
1: right. I think it's important to bear that in mind
0: because it's too easy when you come to these cases
1: for the first time, uh, as I did some years ago, to to think that this is quite a narrow compass. And it, it certainly isn't, as you say. Almost any health professional may encounter, sometimes regularly will encounter, cases of of mental ill health um, and the consequences that can flow from that, including serious self-harm and and suicide. So uh, I think it's important for all practitioners to bear that in mind, clinical practitioners to bear that in mind, and also for lawyers to understand the the full scope of cases that they might encounter.
0: My experience has been that in most of the cases arising out of alleged uh, negligent psychiatric care, the injury has been physical and, and often incurred or suffered in quite dramatic circumstances an attempted suicide of course there are fatal Hmm. accident act claims where there has been a suicide or serious self-harm or some accidental injury as you've mentioned already by someone absconding from a unit something Hmm. of that kind but is that your experience also it's not not always the psychiatric injury yes But a physical one? I
1: I, I think very much so, actually. I I can't, off the top of my head, think of a case where the the sole allegation in terms of injury has been a worsened or new or different psychiatric injury consequent upon negligent psychiatric care. I think, in principle, that is a case that could be brought, leaving aside for a a second difficulties which are obvious with quantification. But in terms of the injuries that are most commonly encountered, it, it is, as you say... Uh, physical injuries sometimes very serious physical injuries up to and including sadly um, uh, deaths by suicide
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's absolutely right. So in any clinical negligence claim the claimant to succeed has to establish the existence of a duty of care Mm. breach of the duty and that the breach caused them injury or or death and the courts are familiar with the Bolam and Bolitho tests of clinical negligence and of the Part 4 tests of causation and the question of material contribution. I just wonder, are psychiatric injury claims in a clinical negligence setting any different?
1: No, so it's important to state that the the principles and the law governing psychiatric injury claims are are exactly the same uh, as for any other case involving alleged clinical negligence. There's nothing different or unusual or special uh, about them. That said, there can be and often are uh, greater difficulties encountered in, in terms of the application of those rules to the particular facts of a case. Um, To to give a a simple example, I think we're going to come on to discuss this in more detail in a moment, but when one thinks about the Bolam and Belitho tests for breach of duty, there are, at least in my experience, a a very wide range of what are thought clinically to be reasonable and acceptable um, treatment options in particular circumstances. So immediately you hit upon the existence of a reasonable body that would have done a particular thing at a particular time. Um, So trying to establish breach of duty given those um, issues Uh, come on in due course to think about difficulties with causation separately, can be challenging,
0: uh, in my experience. So they're not not the easiest claims to to succeed in. It's probably worth mentioning as well that alongside a claim for damages arising out of clinical negligence, Mm. particularly in psychiatric care cases, practitioners also have to think about the possibility of using the Human Rights Act. Yes, I I think
1: to to, to an extent that might be described, if not as a special feature, at least as an additional feature, which is um, fairly regularly encountered in these cases. You obviously have some experience of that, given your involvement um, some years ago in the Raybone case. But what one often sees uh, is a claim for uh, alleged breach of the operational duty uh, under Article 2 of the European Convention, i.e. the right to life. And the argument there, as may be familiar to listeners, but just to, to recite it briefly... Uh, is that a particular patient uh, in particular circumstances was at a real and immediate risk of death, usually because of the severity and extent of their mental ill health uh, and often their prior behaviour. That risk was known, or at least ought to have been known, to whoever was treating them, usually a state authority, would need to be for a human rights act claim to succeed. And reasonable steps, that's the test, very similar to a test in negligence, could have been but were not taken to diminish uh, or to reduce that risk. Uh, and in those circumstances, there is, in principle, a claim under Section 7 of the Human Rights Act for uh, what is actually just satisfaction. That's, that's the test for compensation. That may or may not include damages, both pecuniary and non-pecuniary damages, to uh, achieve just satisfaction. But that is a claim
0: which, in principle, can arise and very often does arise in these cases. And just satisfaction is not, as it were, uh, or the test for that isn't met if there are adequate damages through the more... Usual negligence. Quite. uh, One
1: has to be quite careful with that. Uh, It's easy to simply, if you like, bolt on Mm -hmm. a human rights act claim without thinking Mm -hmm. particularly about what else is already involved in the claim and and what compensation might be recoverable uh, within the claim. But what one really, in my experience at least, has to identify some element of compensation under the domestic regime, particularly the Fatal Accidents Act, um, which isn't available to a particular claimant because of their relationship with the deceased. An obvious example might be bereavement damages, as I think arose in in the Raybone case, because Melanie Raybone was an adult, not a child. And in those circumstances, it is possible, if you like, by way of comparison, to say to uh, the court, well, we want our damages for just satisfaction because we haven't had just satisfaction, we haven't been able to claim, in that instance, bereavement damages. So that's the sort of argument that one um, really needs to
0: identify, something missing that can be filled in by uh, a HRA claim. And in... Uh, a European case Powell and the UK mm. the European Court of Human Rights drew this distinction between mere negligence and something more as yes. it were so mere negligence certainly when dealing with a physical injury or, or management of a physical condition will not be sufficient to engage article 2 uh, and to lead to damages under the what is now the human human rights act mm. um and I think more recently in the European Court, Fernandes and Portugal. Yes, absolutely. And a, an inquest case, domestic case, Parkinson, rather underlined that mm. approach. Mm. But in psychiatric cases, you're more likely to find what Lord Dyson in Raybone called the indicia yes. that could lead to, uh, ultimately, to a claim under the Human Rights Act, as you've described it. and And in particular... A, vulnerability, a particular vulnerability of yeah. the individual patient and also an element of control which can yeah. arise through detention, formal detention under the Mental Health Act or other m- modes of control because Melanie Raybone, for example, wasn't detained. Yes. Um, but you might be a patient who is under control because the doctors may decide whether you should be uh, allowed out of the ward or be on a locked ward or, or whatever it might yeah. be without without actual formal detention. All of that is right. I, I think the key message to draw from that
1: is that it isn't right to think that somehow automatically y- you will have a, a, an in principle viable um, HRA claim in the psychiatric context. It may well be and very often is, as you say, rightly, that the circumstances in such a case um, more readily meet the tests that Dyson set out in Rayburn. And vulnerability is perhaps the most obvious one. Somebody who is suffering from an episode of mental ill health is likely to be more vulnerable than their physically ill counterpart uh, uh, and as you say control not not simply formal detention under, under the mental health act but forms of de facto detention as I think arose in Rayburn i.e. had Melanie left the particular unit where she was uh, being cared for then she would have been detained I think was the evidence if I recall that then all of that can point the way towards um, the um, uh, as I say the criteria that that then enable
0: um, a HRA claim to successfully be brought. Thinking about Breach of duty. Mm. Um, first, first matter which we might talk about is: I've no experience of cases where a failure to detain a patient was alleged to have been negligent. People, some commentators said that was the decision in Raybone, but that was expressly not <laughs> the the basis of negligence in or the allegations of negligence mm. um, or, or, or contravention of the. Um, convention, I should mm. say, more particularly, in that case. Um, have you any experience where you actually alleged that a failure to uh, detain under the Mental Health Act was itself uh, I, a, a ground of negligence? I,
1: I think I have. I'm trying to think as you ask the question. I, n- not, in, not in terms of a, an already voluntary inpatient, I don't. But I'm thinking back to a case, I think, where the individual was being treated in the community, and I think there was there a successful allegation in the sense that it brought about a good settlement in the case of not detaining him um, because of a particular deterioration in his presentation and um, uh, clinical status. So uh, I've certainly seen it raised. I've never contested that issue through to trial. One can foresee difficulties with it um, straight away.
0: Um, But, yes, I have seen it. Yeah. And that touches on the more general point about breach of duty. Mm. In these kinds of cases, it often involves an assessment of risk or an allegedly deficient assessment of risk should this patient be admitted or should they be treated in the community should they be put on this level of observation or or Mm. not now the assessment of risk and you touched on this earlier there's a subjective element is there a subjective element in it there is
1: this is one of the perhaps the first key hurdle in trying to win these cases and it isn't easy there are two elements one is the subjectivity as you say um, different practitioners different people can think differently about the risks that a particular patient presents based on if you like agreed facts so if somebody has done a b and c in the last week does that make them at severe risk of self-harm moderate or low uh, and there can be reasonable disagreements within that spectrum the second element um, is the ease with which it's possible to apply what's sometimes called the retrospectoscope. Um, knowing the outcome, which, as we've already indicated, is, is very often sadly a suicide or at least um, very serious physical injury, can all too easily lead to people um, putting two and two together and, and making five, thereby. In other words, well, that particular deterioration two days before the relevant incident should have been won, um, which generated a, a greater level of response than it in fact did. And one has to be very careful not to do that and to really put yourself back in the shoes as best you can contemporaneously with the practitioners who are dealing with the person, look at the available evidence, which is usually in documentary form, and look really for, for fairly egregious or fairly obvious points which uh, demonstrate that this person is not well, potentially is worse than they have previously been. Uh, And therefore, is at risk or at enhanced risk, and they do need to be pretty clear-cut these um, these instances of risk in order to to give you a chance of
0: success. In in my experience, I think there's a really good point you make that if you're dealing, in fact, with a case where someone has attempted suicide or has caused themselves very serious self-harm, and that's the injury that you're claiming they're claiming damages for, then. There might be a natural tendency to say, "Well, of course they were at risk, yeah. because look what happened." Yeah. But you, the court's not allowed to do that. It has to look at it prospectively and yeah. whether reasonable judgments were made. And just, just to interject on that mm. briefly, I mean, what, what one can see that sort of retrospective
1: thinking, not just on the part of family members, which, which obviously who you deal with in a fatal case, but but also on the part of the person themselves if they survive an incident of attempted suicide and cause themselves serious self harm, the narrative can be reconstructed. Uh, and I've seen this very frequently in their minds, uh, to uh, the point at which they then assert that suicide was always their intention or was always the probable or, or near-certain outcome. And, of course, working back to um, when the events happened contemporaneously, that may very well not be the case. Uh, that they may simply have been ill, confused,
0: uncertain, uh, and all of this was thereby very unpredictable. So in your experience, what what sort of indicators are relied upon to show that what did in fact happen was predictable or or,
1: perhaps paradoxically for those who don't do this work um, regularly or at all that the most commonly encountered indicator is personal expression so somebody saying I think I am going to do this whatever this may be I'm going to self-harm I'm going to attempt to commit suicide now to some extent even those cases are not completely straightforward because one then gets into arguments about whether uh, in the past, they've expressed such thoughts and haven't acted upon them, and therefore whether um, and to what extent those expressions ought to be factored into the risk analysis. Um, but in a case, for example, where somebody generally hasn't said, I am going to do this, uh, and then, particularly during a period of more general deterioration of mental ill health, does so, that's usually a pretty good indicator, uh, and most experts, I think, would say this um, that practitioners ought then to be cognizant of what's going on in terms of the risk and, and more cautious about their approach so that, that's one example so expression uh, other examples depending on the condition from which somebody is suffering and that can make a big difference m- people manifest differently with different um, uh, forms of mental ill health might be obvious changes in their presentation so somebody might become more withdrawn uh, for example uh, in comparison to how they have been or conversely depending on the condition might become uh, the opposite they, they might become busier and uh, uh, more agitated, uh, more agitated yeah. or agitated or whatever it may be so um, one has to have a focus on on the nature of the condition, an understanding of what that can uh, give rise to, and how it can manifest, and then apply that to what is documented, usually in the records, uh, to
0: understand what the risk profile at a given point probably ought to have been. So you could have a long his- a patient with a long history of a psychiatric condition or conditions, um, who who have almost by definition in these cases survived intact to to the point that you're considering as a litigator, that could count against them, if that's the right way of putting (laughs) it, in terms of bringing a claim, because, look, they've had crises in the past or they might have said, I feel suicidal in Mm. the past, but they haven't done anything, uh, as it were, about (laughs) it. They haven't acted on those impulses. This time, by definition, because you're contemplating bringing a claim, they have done what was it about this particular instance that should have alerted the medical professionals to a heightened risk? That, that's one of the problems, isn't it? That, that's right. I think
1: there are two points there. I mean, the, the first is that the easiest claims from, from the legal perspective in which to succeed are those when this is an acute event. So there hasn't been a particular history. This is very out of the ordinary. Um, the risk profile is very high. Somebody is saying, you know, I, I want to kill myself. In those circumstances, the index of, of caution should be relatively highly placed, what one would generally think. But as you rightly say, m- more commonly, certainly in my practice, one encounters periods sometimes of many months. I mean, in the recent case I did, I think somebody was an inpatient for, in an acute setting for about seven months before they sadly killed themselves in, in the inpatient context. Um, and within that period, as you can readily imagine, there were any number of peaks and troughs in their condition, mm-hmm. um, hopes of discharge, which were then dashed because of deteriorations. Uh, multiple incidents of self-harm, I think something in the region of about 35 in that case, including um, attempted suicide. And and within that context, it's very much more difficult to, as I said earlier, to isolate why it is that a particular period, usually fairly proximate in time to the index event, is somehow more significant or more risky than those which preceded it. The other thing perhaps to say on this which is linked is that from, from the lawyer's perspective, I do think we need to be cautious about the fact that I think we see the tip of the iceberg um, here. Uh, it was notable in the same case that I've just referred to that the evidence that was given by the unit and, and um, members of staff at the unit was that they hadn't seen what they called a completed suicide. It's a slightly awful phrase, but that's what they that's what they said in four decades, um, despite having treated you know many thousands, one imagines, of patients in that setting in the time. So we, I'm afraid, see I think the worst cases very often. Practitioners may never see a case of suicide in their entire uh, career, and that obviously is relevant to the way in which they will be looking upon risk. Um, They may well see self-harm on a very frequent basis, but they may never see that self-harm developing into um, what
0: what they call completed suicide. One curiosity in terms of risk is that whereas in many other clinical negligence contexts you may say that what happened was predictable, Yes. Because you know, if blood pressure raised blood pressure continues in you know, unchecked, then certain consequences can be predicted to follow. In psychiatric setting, sometimes it's the very unpredictability of the person or their condition yep. that can give rise to risk. Can, so yeah. uh, that's one curiosity. It, you touched on self-expression. I don't know if you've come across this, but I have. Is Actually, not a great understanding, or an inconsistency in understanding, of suicidal ideation, yes, and active suicidal intent, yes. So I had a case where the practitioners, the, the healthcare professionals, were giving evidence. They appeared to believe that active suicidal um, or intent actually involves someone in being in the course of, yes, yes. committing the act, yeah. Um, Um, But our expert didn't agree with with that, and there was clearly a little bit of confusion or inconsistency about it. I I have seen that.
1: I think I'm waiting um, judgment at the moment in a trial dealing principally with that very issue. Where is the boundary line between ideation or ideation and and, uh, intent? It it seems to me, this is a non-expert perspective in terms of I'm not a clinician, but it seems to me that there must be something wrong with the analysis that says you have to actually have attempted Um, suicide or be in the process of attempting suicide um, particularly in the inpatient context in order then to be classified as having suicidal intent it's uh, I I think a slightly greyer area um, beyond simple having the idea, ideation uh, of committing suicide and having the intention to do it and my own characterisation I think would be if you've got a reasonably concrete plan which is known about on the part of practitioners because it's been expressed or um, in other ways elicited that is much closer to a suicidal intent, I think, um, than simply ideation. Ideation, I, I, I would characterise as a more general sense of um, this is something I might wish to do. Uh, intent is this is how I'm going to do it. Um,
0: and perhaps so, it, perhaps even when I'm going yeah. to do it. So in any case, there's going to be a collection of risk factors mm. that firstly, in terms of breach, you, you you would need as a litigator to look at what was elicited, what was the standard of an assessment. Yes. In terms of documentation, what should a litigator expect to see? A, a written risk assessment? and Yes, I mean,
1: notes in these cases, medical records in these cases, are usually pretty extensive, that's the first thing to say. So you're going to do quite a lot of trawling through, sometimes quite repetitive information, and I say sometimes quite repetitive because um, care notes, for example, particularly in the inpatient setting, will literally set out the day-to-day activities of a patient every single day. And risk assessments, likewise, may vary very little over a long period of time. So it's not quite a copying and pasting exercise, but there's certainly an element of repetition. But in terms of the basic things to look out for um, when you're looking at these cases, that there are care pathways that one encounters. So that is, what sort of care, in a, in a general sense, will a particular patient with a particular condition uh, expect to receive? Uh, as you've said, risk assessment documentation, that can vary depending on the trust or, body that's involved, but generally speaking, it's a relatively formulaic process, not quite a tick box exercise, but certainly a series of um, predetermined issues that need to be elicited from a patient uh, and usually a score um, in some way placed against them, sometimes a numeric score. And perhaps more importantly, I found evidentially um, observation charts and similar. So, uh, as you've already indicated, um, Very often people will be on a certain frequency of observations, depending on the nature and level of the risk that they present. One can see five-minute observations, 10, 15 hourly, etc. Indeed, one-to-one, so literally in sight. But uh, I've certainly done a number of cases, including recent cases, where the, the key issue has been some sort of failure in relation to that observation. So it might be a missed observation... Uh, Or it might be an observation which was prima facie undertaken, so the records indicate that somebody went to the particular place where the patient was, but the quality of it was in some way insufficient. So they didn't look across the entire room. They didn't look in the bathroom, for example. They peeked through the little window that can be found in the external door but didn't go in. So there's any number of variations in terms of how observation can can give rise to uh, claims. Uh, And then perhaps finally on, on documentation, something which is often I find lacking sometimes importantly lacking, is documentation concerning information that was conveyed between different practitioners at handover. So that will usually be uh, when a shift change happens, uh, morning and night commonly. It can also be when uh, lead clinicians change, so there might be a handover from a previous consultant psychiatrist to to another. And it's common, I find, or at least relatively common, to, to discover when you dig into the records that the full compass of risk the full range of circumstances that have happened while somebody's been involved in, in a patient's care, whether that's the previous day or um, at the previous few weeks, is not fully handed over to the successor. And that can be quite a fruitful area for investigation for the litigator, because therein
0: sometimes lies a successful claim. And risk might be enhanced or exacerbated at times of change. Yeah. So thinking about a change from inpatient to outpatient yeah. care... Um. You may have to look for documentation of liaison between the different yes. agencies. So you yeah. may have a community health care team, yeah. and they need to be engaged very often, very early yeah. after a discharge into community. Sometimes care. before, in, in preparation. Yeah, for okay, yeah. Well, no, that, that's right. So um, they yeah. come and visit the patient before, yeah. and that
1: that that itself can be an issue. So w- when you've particularly had a, a patient who's had a lengthy period of inpatient care. The standard which one commonly sees experts expressing ought to be met, is some level of preparation for a discharge that can take many forms. You might have um, increasing periods of unescorted leave, for example, ranging from half an hour initially to you know sometimes a full day and overnight contact with the likes of support workers in the community, uh, sometimes psychologists in the community, uh, and similar. Uh, and all of that, in most cases, ought to be something that's that's being built up towards a discharge. And uh, discharge, as you say, a time of considerable change, can be a real point at which risk becomes acute. And certainly I've done a number of cases where uh, uh, adverse events have happened shortly following uh, discharge. It's worth also mentioning, as I think you were just touching on, the, the question of an MDT or a multidisciplinary team. That's an issue generally in, in cases of psychiatric care in that you will usually have a number of different um, uh, organisations and bodies involved. Uh, across time but that that becomes particularly apparent when one's considering discharge Um, communication between different teams is often an issue or lack of communication between teams and it's important to scrutinize records from each different organization that's involved to work out to what extent relevant information was being passed from one to the other
0: you might have crisis teams as well they they can be in either a community or yes or have an involvement in an inpatient setting is that right
1: that, that that is right. I mean, crisis teams classically are are the sort of team that would see you if you went into A and E, for example, with a with a, an acute um, mental health uh, problem. Um, they would also see you very often in addition to that, uh, when you were then released back into the community, sometimes to home care. So, so their involvement is to try to manage uh, psychiatric risk in, in the community as best they can. Uh, And again, there are are many cases arising out of decisions that that they take, including one that I I did recently. And it's perhaps important to bear in mind that their role, different as it is clearly from an inpatient setting, an acute psychiatric ward, for example, where somebody's a voluntary inpatient or detained, is perhaps subject to to even more, if I I can use this word, lenient requirements uh, than the inpatient setting is, because they can only do so much. There are only so many practitioners. They only see patients at a certain level of regularity. Uh, And their involvement is relatively, this is my language, not their superficial, uh, in my experience. So that has to be borne in mind again when questions of breach arise.
0: Let's have have a look at causation. Mm. So suppose the breach was failing to perform 15-minute observations, Mm. um, and in fact they were done hourly. How Mm. on earth do you prove causation If if someone has then... Harmed harm themselves seriously or, or attempted suicide. So
1: there are two things to, to factor in. One is
0: what your expert says about it. You
1: need to ask and clearly have answered the question what would have happened in the event that the breach um, didn't occur. Experts are ready to give answers to that sort of question, and um, you obviously want them to say, in essence, um, that the incident would have been avoided. But the key thing, really, to remember is that it's not just a question for experts, it's also a question of factual causation. So one has to think about the individual patient, their history, uh, what they have done historically, and build on that to work out in your own mind what you can persuade a judge about what they probably would have done in the event that the negligence hadn't occurred. And to to give an example of that, um, if you have a a shorter time compass than the one you've just posited, so let's say somebody should have been on um, five-minute observations, um, the expert evidence says but in fact were on 15-minute observations and managed in the interim to commit suicide. A question which always has to be thought about is, well, would they still have been able to do that to a greater or lesser extent I- in the five-minute window? And that can be quite, quite an, an intricate process, so you have to think about questions of um, what they actually did. So how long would it have taken, for example, to fashion a ligature? Um, what level of pre-preparation had they done? Was the ligature already ready to go, for want of a better phrase? Uh, and ultimately, sometimes, in terms of medical causation, questions about how quickly hypoxia in that in that context can take hold. And the answer, I can tell you, is pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so there's there's always um, questions of factual and, and medical causation to, to bear firmly in mind because they're very
0: important. What about the argument raised by defendants that, well, if they hadn't have attempted suicide when they did, they yeah. would have done 10 minutes, 1 hour, 10 hours, 10 days, Yep. Later, in any event, do you, do you uh, uh, face that or when you Yes, you're um,
1: we do. The, the The answer, in part, depends upon what's happened to the patient. So, if you're dealing with a patient who is alive but seriously injured, um, I think the approach uh, there would be that that would impact quantification, as opposed to causation. So, a judge would probably, I think, apply a discount to, frankly, all of the losses, depending on the evidence, to account for the possibility or likelihood, depending on what the evidence showed, that this might have happened anyway. If you're dealing instead with a fatal case, somebody, a, a, a case involving a death, um, it, my understanding of the law and the approach that I've taken in the last 10 years certainly is to say that providing you can prove that death at the particular time that it happened was on the balance of probabilities avoidable but for the relevant negligence, that gets you in the door, if you like, to a successful fatal accidents claim. Obviously, again, questions will arise, uh, for example, in relation to dependency claims and how long a dependency might have persisted for, if at all, uh, if that sort of issue um, is in play.
0: Life expectancies may be affected in any event by certain psychiatric conditions, so that always has to be borne in mind. Yes. Um, Let me just raise one issue. It, It may be it's just happened to me in a few cases and it may not be more widespread, but where defendants have raised contributory negligence, so it has happened in a number of cases where I've represented claimants who have attempted suicide, uh, but have suffered serious life-changing injuries as a result of those attempts, and the very act of attempting suicide mm. has been alleged to have been contributory negligence yes. by the by the by the claimant. Yeah. I have to say, in one case, that was maintained all the, all the way to trial, and then abandoned on the day one of trial um, which was not great for Mm. the claimant Mm. who was psychiatrically vulnerable in any event and you can imagine the effect on him of having that allegation against him pursued and then interestingly dropped uh, at the day but there is case law Reeves and core which would would support an argument that in certain cases there can be contributory negligence.
1: I've clearly been lucky because it's, I don't think it's ever been pleaded against me. Perhaps mm. you've been unlucky, I don't mm. know. But, but I've always been, to some extent, I think surprised perhaps that, that it isn't more regularly taken as a point by defendants. Reeves in, in particular, I think, is not a, um, a medical case. It's a case against the Metropolitan Police, yeah. I think from um, uh, 2000, so going back a bit. But, but in that case, um, as memory serves, an individual um, was in police custody Uh, was known to be at risk of committing suicide and did so uh, albeit while still of sound mind which might seem at first (laughs) glance paradoxical perhaps come back to that but um, uh, but the house of lords in that case um, said well it was a deliberate act he was of sound mind this was by his own hand and they applied I think a 50 percent discount for contributory negligence as a result now um, one can readily see the um, potential application of that to, to the sorts of cases we've been discussing as I say I haven't seen it but um, if you have, it's interesting that it's it's certainly kicking around.
0: Well, in, in the case that I have in mind, we, we asked the experts whether they thought that the claimant had capacity, mental capacity, to yes. make decisions about his own health and welfare at, at the relevant time. Because yes. if there's a lack of capacity it's more difficult for a defendant to establish I, I think that's
1: right and th- one one has to bear in mind whenever contribution negligence is raised in any case that the statutory test for it and it's not simply a question of um, was it by their own hand in a suicide context there's also questions of whether it's fair and just to discount any damages um, under the Act and uh, it seems to me that the key issue there w- would necessarily have to be the extent to which if at all this person was able effectively to if you like govern their own behaviour because of capacity or a lack thereof um, so I, c- I can fully see the relevance of that.
0: Now, we've, we've focused on cases where a claimant has harmed themselves physically. Um, there are cases arising out of alleged psychiatric negligence where uh, the, the patient has harmed someone else, yes. or in the ca- recent case of Henderson, has committed matricide. Yes. I'll just mention it briefly to say that the authorities are pretty clear that you cannot claim compensation mm. for you won't be awarded it, you can mm-hmm. claim it, but you mm-hmm. won't be awarded it for the consequences of an illegal act such as yes. matricide, or indeed more more narrowly, for the consequences of being, say, in, detained or imprisoned yes. as a result of that yeah. illegal act. That's, that's, pre- that's just well established it, now. It, it is,
1: and I, I have to say, in light of Henderson, which I don't think is being appealed on from the Court of Appeal where it was heard to the Supreme Court, I've not heard any, I know permission was refused, I think, in the case, Uh, and I've not heard anything since about it. Um, That seems to me at the moment to represent a a very high bar for claimants to surpass if you're going to run that sort of case. Public policy, as you say, on both grounds uh, debars a claim. And and what Henderson decided effectively um, was that Clunis, the old case of Clunis, and also the subsequent case of um, Gray uh, and Ten Strains, were were both, in context, correctly decided. So um, you're going to struggle, I suspect, with that one.
0: Well, Stephen, thank you so much for discussing these Cases with me—they're difficult cases to litigate. Mm. Um, just calling a claimant who has maybe an ongoing psychiatric illness to give evidence at trial raises all sorts of issues we haven't had time to <laughs> discuss. Um, uh, but they are difficult cases uh, for some of the reasons that we have um, we have discussed. They deeply affect the lives of patients and their families, and I'd hope the difficulties in litigating them shouldn't lead to those patients, those uh, families being passed over by by lawyers. There are support bodies such as AVMA or MIND who can provide guidance to anyone who thinks they've been affected by negligent psychiatric care. This and other debrief podcasts are available on the King's Chambers website, uh, kingschambers.com. Just go to the Resources and Training tab and click on Podcasts. And you can obtain fact sheets for each episode uh, by emailing podcast at kingschambers.com. Well, thank you, Stephen, and thank you for listening, and goodbye.